Hello, and welcome to Mornings with Joel, commercial real estate podcast, where we focus on rising stars and established players in commercial real estate and talk to them about how they are building legacies in today's marketplace. So we'd like to uh, welcome everyone to uh, Mornings with Joel, our CRE podcast. We're very excited this morning that we have a very special guest uh, who's got up early and is joining us from the West Coast. Ricardo Pagan. Ricardo, how are you doing this morning? Very good. How are you guys? Fantastic. Fantastic. It's very exciting to have you today. And uh, for most of you who don't know, as I mentioned in the uh, invitation for this, you will know uh, Ricardo because um, he's actually actively working on transforming the Los Angeles skyline and a very, very impressive product that he's working on. Now, we've had the opportunity to uh, work with uh, Ricardo as a client of ours on a project here in Atlanta. And uh, we're excited to, uh, you know, represent his interests here. And so that's been a, a good thing as well. So, Ricardo, happy to have you here today. Um, obviously, you don't just crawl out of bed one day and put up a $1.2 billion building. So how did all this start? You know, what's your background? Where you're from? Uh, what can you tell us a little bit about your background? Sure. How you got started? Well, I we, we migrated to the States in, in 1989 from Dominican Republic. My parents uh, uh, and I. Came very, very young. We moved into New York City immediately. Um, the first year, we we spent the first half of the first year here. Then we moved into Providence, Rhode Island for a year. And mm-hmm. in 1991, we were effectively back in New York and living in Brooklyn. When we came back to Brooklyn, we moved uh, uh, immediately into Williamsburg, Brooklyn, which is an area that now is known as a very big, hot area. But at the time, it was an area that was very, very poor yep. and full of a lot of problems, a lot of crime, heavy mm-hmm. crime. My father found a way in 1992 to buy a small business, a laundromat that he had uh, bought um, uh, with some resources that, that he was able to put together. and. You know, it was kind of off to the races for him from, from there. And I got to see what hard work was and things like that. And I saw how hard, hard that kind of work was. I mean, he was doing 60, 70 hour weeks to not really make it out of, out of much, honestly. He was a small business owner like like many people here in the U.S. So, mm-hmm. you know, in the 90s, I met a friend whose father was a realtor for a long, long time. And he was a top agent for Century 21 for many, many years. Mm-hmm. And that fellow was always talking to my dad about buying houses, but my father did not understand that concept. And we thought that that there was no reason to to do anything like that. In the late 90s, 97, 98, I started to kind of, for some reason, pay attention to that kind of stuff. And I told him, I said, you know, how does this work? And he said, well, why don't you come work for me and you can see how, how that works. So he brought me in as a, a leasing agent just to rent apartments for him in Queens, Corona Queens, Woodhaven Queens, Jackson Heights, those were the areas that I was really busy with at the time. Mm-hmm. And I caught on to it pretty quickly. I was to my first year of college doing my associates at the time. And, you know, I, I caught on pretty quickly. He said, look, I'm gonna sponsor you to get your license. So you can actually sell stuff with me. Okay. Uh, at the same time, I was helping him do listings and cash listings and stuff like that. And at the time, unlike now with social media and everything else, we had to go and print out hundred letters or sometimes even more scour blocks with letters and 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 see them basically and then go knocking door to door to get clients so mm-hmm. you know i learned the basics of what it was for me to find uh, a, a property uh, get control of it and list it which it was for other people it wasn't for me but it was the same thing that i would later use to get control stuff myself so you know i i'll fast forward but a year or so into that i had already sold three houses on my own made a few dollars and a client of ours who was a city Jewish guy, uh, had a few buildings in Brooklyn at the time. He had a, a building in Best Eye, uh, Brooklyn, which at the time was definitely not the place to be. Yep. Came to us and said, look, we're trying to sell this building on Pacific Street, you know, help us out. We would like to see if, if you can help, help us unload it. We went to see it. We told him flat out that the price he wanted was just not achievable there. We're talking about $215,000 at that time for a three-unit building. So we're, wow. not talking big, we're not talking big big dollars here. Mm-hmm. And he said... Well, you know, see what you can do. Uh, I'll give you a bigger commission, blah, blah, blah. We tried to sell it. It didn't go anywhere. At that price, or even lower. And I was going to school one day. I used to take the uh, uh, the L train into Manhattan to go to school. Mm-hmm. And on the train ride, I just came up with an idea. And I said, why don't I just buy the thing? 
And when I came back, I called the guy up and I said, look, I have an idea when we meet up. I met the guy up and I told him, I said, look, why don't you help me buy the thing? And he said, why? I said, I always wanted to buy some stuff. Maybe I could just start right here. And he said, why would you want to buy this one in particular? I said, because you, you have it rented to the city. It was rented to the city to a program called DIS, which is for mm-hmm. people who, with uh, 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 basically families that, that were displaced. That's what that agency took care of. So I told him, I said, that building would probably be rented all the time. That's really what I need. And right. I would like to start somewhere. So he helped me figure out how to finance it, which I did not know how to do. I got into the building with barely any money. And I didn't even have an attorney, honestly, representing me, which was nuts. But I, I, I got into that one, bought it for 185 and I was on. That was my first building in 1999, wow. right beginning 2000s when that one, that one closed. Now, how many units and was that? Say it was three units, but it was split in the middle as rooms. One mm-hmm. room in the back, one room in the middle with a common kitchen and a common bathroom. And yeah. we would rent each room instead of the entire apartment. That's how gotcha. they allowed us to, to, to rent it in the city will pay us a thousand fifty per room. So mm-hmm. I was making pretty good money out of that place immediately. It was in immediate cash. And I was able to, I was working at the time, I was working as a security guard and working for Center 21 for this fellow. Mm-hmm. The time. That's how I was making ends meet. And when I bought the building, I was able to let go of uh being a security guard and working full time for for for, for Center 21. So what I did at that point was I split my time between finding listings and properties for my boss at the time was Bernard Ortiz. And I started finding my own. So the same tactics I was using for him going on Corona Queens and looking around for things. I started doing the same, but in Williamsburg, I went to Williamsburg where I lived, which right. I, where I knew a lot of people started looking block by block, one by one. And eventually I started buying buildings. I bought my second building, which was 167 Grand Street which is Grand Street and Bedford Avenue for $152,000 in 2000. Mm-hmm. Then I bought $149,000 for $225,000. Then I bought $159,000, and it just kept going. By the time I was 22 or 23, this is now a year after the September 11 attacks, I had seven buildings and close to 30 wow. units. And, you know, it, from there it was on, but basically from yeah. there... I started moving and started growing and it did not stop. Let's pause right there because you you brought up a lot of good points. And I I just kind of want to circle back on that. You know, number one, you talked about your father and he didn't really understand the reason of of buying real estate. And uh, Ricardo, that that actually takes me back to um, a conversation I had with my father-in-law at one point. You know, he grew up in uh, in Manhattan. You know, they were they were living in the in the polo grounds, uh, you know, uptown there where you probably know. And uh, it was quite interesting because the idea was, well, why would I want to go $200,000 in debt and own a piece of real estate? Well, you know, it, and that was just the, the mindset of a lot of people back at that time, you know, not I, understanding I it. And it wasn't just the debt. I think people did not understand the asset class. They didn't care about the asset class. Yeah. My parents did not care about that one bit. For many yeah. years and after, mm-hmm. they saw successes happen. They didn't care about the asset class. Yeah. And they thought it's a liability because of all the tenant issues all these other things, which which were things that they just needed to understand. Yeah. You know, to me, I was willing to learn it. I was willing to understand and learn what it was. So what is tenant law? How do you yeah. do notice this? How do you do compliance? You know, I just yeah. wanted to learn that stuff. So the way I learned it was I went and started taking uh, certificate courses at NYU, which mm-hmm. were $300, $400 a piece on different things, finance and how to do a performance, how to do and tenant law and all these things. And slowly started to learn how it really worked. Right. And I had a teacher who got me an internship at a couple of, of real estate firms in New York, and I saw how they really did it. I worked for this family, which I, I, I will not name, and, mm-hmm. you know, I worked for them quietly for a couple of years, and they owned, they owned maybe about 2,000 apartments in New York, mostly okay. in the Bronx, and they put me as their asset manager for a number of years. I learned what it took to really manage buildings, do evictions, everything, you know, the, from the buying process when they bought things all the way to when they sold. I saw how they did it all the way. So they basically, <clears throat> without knowing, basically coached me, uh, I will pay me because as I was working for them, I was buying buildings at the same time, all at the same time. Gotcha. And eventually I said, you know, these guys are in, in Harlem. They're in Washington Heights. They're in the Bronx. We need to go up there. Mm-hmm. And quietly, I started doing the same tactics I did in Williamsburg. I went out to Harlem, which was empty at the time. It was empty and burned. Yeah. And I started buying townhouses and small buildings there the same way. Uh, my first apartment building, 22 units, I bought that thing for about 600 grand at the time. You bring up a powerful point because that's another issue I want to address. You know, I grew up in Manhattan, uh, uptown there. 
and, you know, went to school in Brooklyn. So I, I know the areas that you're talking about extremely well. And back at those times, they were rough. And it's, it's almost like you have to have that vision that this is going to transform. Remember those those brownstones in Manhattan that you could walk in and look right yeah, up and see the sky? Not, I mean, they were just empty shells, right? But so they were going for like, like that. yeah, but people, you know. Home, my first townhouse was 236 West 123rd Street. I always remember okay. that. I'll never forget it. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Next Avenue, uh, not Next Avenue, uh, Frederick Douglass mm -hmm. to the next avenue over. I yeah. remember like today. Yeah. I bought that building for 250 Uh It had no back bearing wall. It was uh -huh. gone. <laughs> and it, had, it had been burned. And my father looked at me and he said, you have lost your mind. And I said, no, I'm telling you. Yeah. This is going to make some sense. And he said, why? I said, look, right now no one believes at coming up here, anything above 110th Street is something that people don't touch. Exactly. Why would someone not want to come above the, the park? Now, the, the, the ignorance, and I guess the ignorance helps you, is that I didn't know the history of Harlem. Mm -hmm. All the drug issues, all the stuff, how people were afraid of getting shot and mugged and everything else on the, on the high park, uh, high side of the park, how the history of the Upper West Side was in the 70s, uh, uh, in 60s, 70s and 80s streets where nobody was there, you mm -hmm. know, probably even 10 years before. I didn't know any of that. Yeah. I was too young to know any of that. But to me, I still could not understand why nobody would come up beyond 96th Street or 110th Street, certain places. Yeah, right and by the park. Eventually, somebody's going to do that. Yeah. I said, how are you going to tell me that a townhouse just 20 blocks from here is four, five, six million bucks. And here I'm paying less than half a million for the thing. Doesn't make sense. So again, the ignorance helped me to think something that really wasn't there. I remember when Clinton put uh, uh, Hillary's uh, office on 125th. Yep. And uh, 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 this guy, uh, what's the basketball player's name? Shaquille O'Neal mm -hmm. bought the uh, uh, townhouse that he bought on 124th and Lennox. It was the two biggest pieces of news that happened in 2003 there. And everybody started paying to pay attention and everything else. And I said, now, let's do it now. So yeah. I started putting stuff on the New York Times. I started putting stuff in the Daily News to start getting people out there. And then I started seeing the role of all these people started to buy. <clears throat> but mostly from 110th to mm -hmm. 125th. Then when I crossed 125th. So I started doing the same thing. I will buy there and mm -hmm. then a little bit above. And slowly I started to grow and grow and grow. By the time that people realized what I was doing in 2004, I had about 300 units, 400 units by that time. Wow. And to me, I thought they were just buildings. I didn't understand what having holdings were and assets under management or anything like that. To me, I just had buildings and I was just happy to buy more and more and more. And someone came to me one time and said, wait, you don't, you don't have many units? And I said, I own this amount of units. And he said, so who's your management team? I said, I don't have, I don't have one. It's like, oh, no, you cannot continue like that. And I started to realize. <laughs> Bring yourself out. Size. That's when I had to, that's when I realized that I had size. And then I realized that the the largest Dominican community that we had was from 157th Street. Oh, Washington Heights. Yeah. So I said, let me go up there. It'll be easier for me to manage people up there. And that's when it went off. Hmm. There I went from 500 to, to 1,000 plus very quickly because I was able to get in people's ears. People were, were giving me tips and, and getting me to owners and everything it was much easier because mm -hmm. I could get to people much easier that way. And it just kept going from there, man. It was it was, it was was nuts to me that, that that it was as easy as it was. Wow. Because I saw it as easy, honestly. And to me, it was fun. I used to drive, I had, I had a Chevy Impala at the time and I had it with tinted windows. I used to basically go to the areas, have meetings, move around and do what I had to do and go to school and then go to the job I had and play that. And no one knew what was going on. I was never in the news. I was never on on anything, not, not on a blog or anything like that. No one really talked about me at all until I decided in 2003, 2004, from a tip that, that a broker gave me that, that I met a, a, another a, a Jewish guy uh, from Benson & Associates. I remember a broker that worked for Benson & Associates. He told me he was selling buildings in Michigan. And I told him, I said, where the hell is that? He said, oh, it's in the middle of the country. I'll show you. And I said, no, 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 I'm doing pretty good here. Yeah. I ain't going over there. I said, look, I barely know New Jersey. Why would I go to Michigan? So he said, come with me to Michigan. Let me show you around. I, I bet you you're going to love it. And I said, you know, I haven't really been on planes like that. Let me think about it. I spoke about it with my parents. And yeah. they said, yeah, you shouldn't go over there. You know, you don't really know what's there. And Something in my in my ear just kept bugging me and said, just go, who the hell cares? Just go check it out. So I bought a ticket and I went to Michigan on a super cold November. I remember that call like today. And mm. I got up there. He met me at, at Wayne Airport and he took me around. I didn't know where I was. I didn't know what was up from down, but I went out there and I looked at this area, which I now know is Highland Park. 
He was showing me around and it looked, honestly, it looked like a bomb had gone off. Yeah. I had never seen anything like that. Yeah. And I told him, I said, look, man, I understand what your idea is. You know, I get it that this 50 unit building here is selling for 200 grand. I get that. But, you know, Harlem is Harlem. This is not Harlem. Yeah. I, I because I, I, I used to always compare anything that was like that to Harlem. To me, that's all I knew. So I said, mm -hmm. you know, Harlem is Harlem, man. The only place I've seen that's burned, that's actually turning around, is Harlem. This, I don't know what this is. And I remember he came and told me, you know, let's go to dinner. He took me to the rent end, uh -huh. General Motors uh, Plaza downtown. He took me at 3 p.m. And I could tell you that we we drove down from Highland Park and Woodward Boulevard. He wanted to show me around. And I remember getting to the city, and I had never seen anything like this in my life. All these skyscrapers and everything empty. Right and left, right and left, yeah. everything. No one walking around, no one, all the lights, all the uh, signal lights were off. The public lights on the street were off. I had never seen that. And and it just, it just shocked me. I said, you know, Dying what city. Yeah. I told them, what the hell happened here? <laughs> they said, well, you know, uh, 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 some people uh, didn't do the right thing. And I said, there has to be more than that. Yeah. So that really shocked me. And I left with that. I went to New York and I made a few more deals. And it just stayed in the back of my head. And I said, you know. Let me go back. So I went back on my own this time. Mm -hmm. And I rented a car, started looking around downtown. I started just driving around downtown the same way. And I, and I was like, why would nobody want to do anything here? Look at it. Why? So I started digging around. I started meeting people. I met an attorney and I asked him, tell me why Detroit is the way it is. There's a reason for that. Mm -hmm. And he started telling me, you know, the history, the 70s and all this other stuff. And I started to understand it. I said, I see what's happening now, what's the opportunity to be had here? And I said, well, there's this new mayor that's coming into town. His name is Kwame Kilpatrick. You know, he's going to come in with all these new ideas and blah, blah, blah. You, you may want to be a part of that. And I said, let's meet him. So I met Kwame Kilpatrick in 2004. Young oh, guy. Okay. Yeah. Super young. Met his dad, mm -hmm. who to me was the, the real wheel behind the, the brains over there. Right. And they explained to me what was coming to the city and all these great things they wanted to do. And they introduced me to the Lambrick family. Susan Lambrick, John Lambrick, those guys, they own maybe six buildings down there. They came to wealth by the father, John Lambrick, who passed away in the 90s. He uh, committed suicide for reasons that I did not know. And the mother and the son, John Lambrick uh, Jr., amassed, they inherited like six buildings downtown, one of them being the Book Tower. They met me at the Book Tower where the offices was. That's Washington and Gratiot in downtown 1249, Washington. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I met him there. <clears throat> Susan showed me around the building and she was not selling, but she kind of told me what was going on. She was one of these ladies that used to wear super expensive uh, uh, jewels and everything else, these expensive dresses and had three guys flanking her all the time. And she showed me around downtown and I said, you know, why don't you tell me about selling one of these? I'll buy one of them from you. And she said, you buy one. Why would you come here? And I said, because I would like to expand and the size you would give me here, I will never get in New York for yeah. the numbers you're giving me. And she said, well, then why, why don't we think about the book tower? So we started talking about that. The conversation went nowhere for about a year. And I just kept pressing, pressing, pressing until one day I started reading the Detroit Free Press, which I used to keep up with at the time. And there was an article where DT Energy, the biggest energy provider in the Midwest, mm -hmm. was going to shut, shut off her lights over $300,000 in unpaid bills. Oh, wow. How did that happen? I do not know. I called Susan up and I said, Susan, I don't like to get in your business, but your business is in the newspapers. As I understand, <laughs> you are getting shut off by DT Energy. Is that true? And, oh, that's propaganda, X, Y, and Z. And I said, well, propaganda or not, it's here. Uh, what do you want to do about that? Well, come see me. Maybe we'll talk about it. So I went to Detroit. We met at the, at the uh, Detroit Athletic Club, which is the only place in downtown that was safe mm -hmm. and where the money really went. Uh, it's this private club in, in downtown. And I went there. We sat down. Uh, in, in the cigar room, she used to smoke cigars. I was not a smoker. And she was telling me all this history, all this stuff. She was actually crying because she was upset at how bad that the things I got for her. And she said, look, well, don't we find a way for you to help me out? If you help me out, pay the bill, I'll help you out, deal with the buy with the purchase of the building. So I took three of my buildings, put them together. I borrowed $350,000 at about 13%, 14% at the time. Mm. I didn't get lines of credit. And with that money, I paid off her DTE bill. And in turn, she gave me an option for a year and a half, I think it was, to buy the building for six million bucks. No, excuse me, for eight million bucks. Mm -hmm. So I went, I didn't know how to get a investment banker at the time. I didn't know how to even go about even finding 
you know, the millions of dollars that I would need to buy it. Uh, for some reason, I thought that, that I could figure it out. So I went to a teacher that I had at NYU. NYU, I had started to, to take classes, but I couldn't pay for the BA. It was too expensive for me at the time, even though I have buildings and I have cash. Mm. So I opted to take certificate courses and I met a teacher there. I told him what I was plotting. And he said, look, I'll, show, I'm, I'm, I'll get you introduced to somebody that can help you. And he got me to a company named Eichmann Ziff. And Eichmann Ziff showed me what was debt and equity and all these other things and told me, we can get you this. If you get this, you can get that. The value of the building is overvalued because of this. I didn't know how to do performance. I didn't know how to do returns on costs. I didn't know how to do anything. I just knew that $8 million for 528,000 square feet sounded extremely cheap. Yeah. And I said, you know, let me see. So anyway, got in there. The guys showed me how to get some debt. They got a company out of, out of New Jersey to get me a loan. Unfortunately, those guys took my deposit, $47,000 in deposit, and, and kept the money instead of giving me the loan that they screwed me at the time. Mm. But that led me to another lender, KSI Capital, in New Jersey also, the uh, Haskell brothers. And they went to, to Detroit and said, look, we'll give you $4.5 million. Tell her that you can only get five and that she should sell, sell you the building for five. We used that leverage against her. She dropped her price to six million bucks. And I went and got a second mortgage from her at 650. And I put the balance, $200,000, another money, another set of money that I borrowed at the time was an equity. And I effectively bought the building on mm. June 26, 2006. That took me from being a very small guy to being a big guy in 10 seconds. I didn't realize the, the impact from that, yeah. the price that I got from that, the notoriety I got in all the Midwest, not just there in Chicago, predominantly from that. All the people, politicians, things like that were me from that. Mm. That that buy, that purchase, even though my father hated me for it, he really did. <laughs> he did, he did, he did. He he I could tell you seriously, I remember that day, like today, when I took him to Detroit and I flew him there. He was very upset at the purchase. He understood that that was the end of me. And look, you can understand, man. I mean, the Detroit was empty. Yeah. There was no one there. He didn't even understand that I even had tenants in that building. It was only maybe 40% occupied at the time. It was barely paying my bills, and I took it anyway. And I took millions of dollars, which I personally guaranteed without even knowing because I didn't know how to even deal with that and negotiate documents at the time. Mm -hmm. And I bought this building in the city that I did not know six months earlier, seven months earlier. So, you know, I bought it. I was there. And from there was off, man. It was off from there, you know, that the news was all over me. They wanted, they did not believe that a 26-year-old at the time, which I was 26, on the, on the building of that type, that I didn't have any investors. A lot of people were wondering where the money came from. There was a lot of uh, funny talk at the time. Drug dealer, right? Oh, no, yeah. That, that was, that, unfortunately, I didn't want to say that, but that's exactly what it was. Mm -hmm. And they understood that there had to be something funny going on. And they didn't understand what happened the first five years before them. Mm -hmm. It was all those buildings that I bought and everything that I was doing. They did not realize that I had done that. And again, I still didn't realize how important that was. Once I got to the book tower and I owned that and I started meeting council members and 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 uh, governors and like Governor Granholm was the governor in, in Michigan at the time. Mm -hmm. I met her early in her career. And even though I didn't give any money to her campaign, we became friends very, very early. And between knowing Jennifer Granholm, then knowing Kwame Kilpatrick, I got to know what politics was, how that world worked. Yeah. And how it really worked, all that crazy shit that they were doing and all those contributions and all that stuff that were taking. I got to learn all about the machine. And that machine started me meeting politicians in New York, in D.C., then moving around slowly to places that later would get me into what I am now. So yeah. from that building, I knew that I could continue that path without having any problems. I used that notoriety yeah. to go back to New York and buy more. And That was, was a pivotal point for you at that point. It, it was night and day. Everybody tells me, how did you even get into doing this? And I say, very simple. Go online and put my name, Ricardo Pagan, in the book tower. You'll find it in 10 seconds. The thing is that with me, I'm not in the news, although now I am. I mean, now you see me in the news every other day, but a mere three years ago, four years ago, I wasn't in the news either. I never liked the news. I never liked being, you know, the, the guy that's known and everything else. But I've been at it in this clip since I was 26, if you want to count it from the book tower this way. But in reality, I've been at it since 2000, yeah. nonstop, all the way, nonstop, every single year, doing something the entire time. Mm -hmm. But 2006 was the pivotal year where I went from completely unknown to being like, hey, here I am. And when I did that, it was it was over from there. You know, I got things. I didn't understand what the what the color of my skin meant in a good way and bad way at the time. What opportunities it opened for me. I did not I did not know that. I did not know the capital market. I was getting to know. But once all these things started to come together like this, 
Then from there, it was like, okay, now I know what I got. Now I can do these things. And from there, it went crazy. You know, my next yeah. deal after that. Well, hold on one second before you, before you go on to that. Let, let's back up for a second because you talk about 2006 and that being a, a pivotal year. Now, you know as well as I do, 2006 was pretty much at the at the top of the economy uh, and everything kind of went crazy from that point on. So how did you navigate those challenges uh, with a brand new building, only 40% leased uh, as you went into oh. 06, 07, 08? Now, now that fresh. I know. Now that I know. And not only that, I'll give you the second deal I did, it, which is more complicated than this. Now I know. I didn't know what markets were up, down. I didn't know any of that. I did not know that I was in a peak. I did not know that I was in a high market time where, where money was. was flush. I didn't know any of that. Let's start there. So I did not know how high or low I was. Right. At all. Nor do I, nor did I care. Mm-hmm. Honestly, nor did I really care whatsoever. With that being said, at the same time that I was working on this project, in New York, through the same broker, I was looking at a site in the waterfront of Brooklyn. Mm-hmm. Again, I'm from Williamsburg. That's where I'm from. And the waterfronts of Brooklyn were never an, an interesting thing to anybody. Ever. For some For some strange reason, because the views never. are tremendous. Never. Right? And, and you kind of wonder about that. Mm-hmm. When a broker told me about what was coming and the new mayor of Bloomberg was going to do this and blah, blah, blah. And I said, that all sounds great. I would live there all my life almost. We have never gone to that waterfront. There's no reason to go there. No, but I'm telling you, it's going to change. Look at this, look at that. And I say, yeah, I know you're just pitching me some. Not for me. Right. Until the Domino Sugar Factory decided to, decided to say goodbye to Brooklyn. Mm-hmm. And they went to Mexico. Took 20,000 employees with them, left another 20,000 unemployed. I saw the impact of that, which was very, very bad to Williamsburg because Williamsburg was very dependent on that factory. Mm-hmm. I just didn't know how that that economic worked at the time. I was too young to understand that, even though I own buildings now. I still did not know that. So Domino Sugar leaves. All these people are unemployed. Other people leave, whatever the case is. And this guy by the name of Isaac Catan, very uh, young acidic developer, buys the Domino Sugar factory for $80 million at the time. First time I ever heard that kind of those kind of numbers. And I said, why in the hell would he buy <laughs> this crappy ass building, which I've seen a million times in my life, mm-hmm. where people are getting shot every other day? Why would why? So again, curiosity, right? Mm-hmm. I luckily New York property property information is is public. It's called Acres. So on Acres, I will go and, and look up the block and license and dig up all the history on these buildings. And I started looking. Side after side, side after side on the waterfront. And I and I started realizing something. There was a lot of purchases and sales going on on the waterfront for the past three years, four years. Mm-hmm. Big ones, $40 million deal, $30 million deal, $20 million deal. A lot of investors, big investors, were already snapping up sites on the waterfront the entire time. So I went back to that broker and I said, where did you tell me that site you were trying to sell is at? Oh, it was in Greenpoint. So he took me there. It was called the Pencil Factory. Mm-hmm. He took me to see it. I looked at it and I said, but all the activities over there, in Williamsburg, they're not here yet. He said, that's because they don't know it yet. You know, they're doing Long Island City over here. They're doing uh, 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 Williamsburg. We're in the center of it. They're going to have to come here. And I said, take me to Long Island City. I've not been to Long Island City yet. He take, Even though I was in Harlem, I've not been to Long Island City. Mm-hmm. He took me to Long Island City. He showed me what was going on. And there were two towers already going up. And I said, you're telling me that this crowd that they're doing here, they're going to do over there. He said, I'm telling you, man, they're going to rezone it the same way. So to convince me, he took me to a community board meeting, community board seven, to see the public hearings on what was known as the Greenpoint Williamsburg rezoning, which Bloomberg was trying to do in 2003, four, five, six. Mm-hmm. I went to the freaking hearings. I saw it and I signed on to it so I could get the, 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 the notices since I was a resident of Williamsburg. I was allowed to get those. And I was sold, man. I saw that. I said, holy shit, these people are going to take this and rezone. That's why this guy paid 80 million for this damn site. It's in the map. I saw the map and it was right on it. Yeah. I said, he knows exactly what he's doing. This is proactive. He knows what he's doing. And I had not yet closed on the book towers already in contract. And I was thinking about how to meddle all of that. I was taking my flights to Detroit. And I went to that same guy in NYU and I said, look, I have a second idea. He said, what is that? I said, I have the idea that the waterfronts in Greenpoint and Williamsburg are going to be something very great at some point. The city's looking to rezone it. And he said, yeah, Ricardo, you don't understand. That takes ages, takes years, and it's going to be a process. And I said, yeah, but we should get into it now. Let's figure it out now. Yeah. He didn't think it was it was soon enough. He thought it was too early. So again, I went, borrowed money from a couple of guys at the time, mm-hmm. and I bought an option 
on what's known as 141 West Street at the time. For 300 grand, I got an option at $75 million. Hmm. I don't know why in this planet that man thought that I could buy that building for that price. <laughs> I chased him. Honestly, I chased him. I went after him. I called him a million times. He used to be tired of hearing from me. One day I appeared in his office in, in Long Island, and he just said, you know, that has to be so. So he took me up on it, met me and my attorney uh, at the time, and uh, Stuart Michelle was his name. And we sat down with him, and we convinced him, and he gave us a fucking option. We recorded the option against the, the asset. Again, another way that, that I, the, the only way that I'm able to, to show people what I did and didn't do in those years. And I had my first major asset purchase here. Hmm. That price later went up to $83.5 million for a lot of reasons. But I went back to that guy again to try to convince him, show him that I had the option. And he said, I'm going to introduce you to somebody that you need to talk to. And he introduced me to a guy by the name of John Bernstein. Mm-hmm. John Bernstein was a big attorney at Prior Cashman, uh, had been uh, Donald Trump's attorney in the 80s for many years. He did all the big deals with Donald, the Trump Plaza deal. He did the Trump Tower deal. He did all the casinos in Atlantic City. He had all these plaques from all, those, all these deals in his office. And I was just amazed by that. I was like, fuck, who the hell is this guy? So I knew Trump was, but I did not know who he was. And he told me what was up. And he said, Ricardo, what are you trying to do here? I said, I'm trying to do this, this, this. They're going to do this with the city, you know, and I need some help in putting together financing. He said, how much you need? I said, $100 million. Just like that. And he said, he laughed. He said, you must be joking. You know, $100 million, you won't get just like that. Why don't we go see the site? So he takes me. We go to the site, we're on Java Street now, on the waterfront. And we, I remember him tapping me on my shoulder. He said, you know what the biggest asset you have here that you don't know about? And I said, what is it? And he pointed to the city, the 34th Street, because you could see the helipad from there. Yeah, he the said, that right there. Yep. Everybody's going to see that from here. They're not going to see you in Brooklyn, which is not that great to look at. They're going to be looking at the city for the rest of their lives. Mm-hmm. And I said, okay, it's like, whatever. And then, then what he started saying, whatever we design here is going to have to face that way, to look at Midtown and to look at downtown. And he said, look, why don't we get together instead? Why, instead of me helping you find stuff, why don't we get together and form a partnership? And I said, sure, why don't we do that? I was happy as hell not knowing what that even meant. Mm-hmm. And we formed what's known as Brantford Partners at the time. Okay. And Brantford Partners was owned majority by him, by John Bernstein, minority by me. And without knowledge, he went and hired a top gun land use attorney Top, 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 super expensive guy, knew everything in, in this planet. Mm-hmm. He started teaching us really what was going on. For example, he met us with Dan Doktorov, the head of the Economic Development Corp, who was running the operation. We met up with that guy face to face. He told us exactly what he wanted to do, how it was going to work, and met us with others, other people in the uh, uh, mayor's office. And we learned exactly what that was. With that, John went to his friends, family offices, and other people. Mm-hmm. And we got he got us in front of, of what's known as the Clark Estates, very large family office. I didn't know what a family office was at the time. Yeah. But I knew they were large, just given all the art and other stuff I saw in their office. I sat down with them and they came and said, look, you know, this kid's, he's got some guts. We feel like we want to finance it before somebody else does. So they came and wrote me a check for $5 million at the time mm. for me to pay for an option, pay for a deposit and everything else, which was given to John. The money was not given to me. John acted as the elder statesman, if you want to call it. Sure. And Brantford Partners was, was off, off to the races. We have $5 million in in, uh, in cash in mid-2005. Mm-hmm. We bought an option for four years, a million dollars a year for mm-hmm. four years to go through the process, rezoning and everything else. The next year, I closed on the book tower in 2006. I was already in the middle of this one at the same time. So when I bought the book tower, even though it happened backwards, I bought the book tower. At that point, I got known. Mm-hmm. publicly. I was all over the place. And then as people started to know, they wanted to know more. And I said, oh, I just happened to be doing the side on the waterfront, not knowing how big that was. Yeah. And people said, wait, you're doing a $100 million deal on the waterfront in Williamsburg? And I said, yeah, sure I am. And from there, it was just the brokerage community. Everybody just started saying, wait, we need to know who that is now. And it was, I'm telling you, it was night and day. The book tower was night and day for me. From there, I could keep going. All the deals that happened after. And look, to me, all the deals, including the, the, the Angels Landing Project, was just a blur in front of that because it happened so fast, so quick. And a lot of times I, I have trouble with people understanding how that could happen to a 25, 26 and now 27 year old. That is really doable. If you really put yourself out there, uh, catch the right assets, get the right situations, get yourself in the right situation, and then get some people to believe in you, which is hard to do. Mm-hmm. I was willing to take the chance to take the bets and the bets that I took 
uh, anyone can take, honestly. They just have to just go for it. And, and, I, and I went for it at the time and it, and it worked. It really worked, man. Now, you asked me about how did it go in the downturn. Yeah. Again, I didn't know how high it was or how low it was. Here I am. We had an option on an, on an $83 million site, right, that we were paying for. We had not closed yet. Mm-hmm. We're 50% to the, to the process when the market dipped on us. I am sitting in the book tower, which is barely cash flowing in that time. Detroit goes into just destruction. When the first one went, the other three went very quickly right after that. Mm-hmm. I remember seeing the lines, you know, three deep, five blocks down of people looking for for food and everything. It was it was mm-hmm. scary to be in Detroit when the markets went down. Yeah, and I was scared as hell. I said, "This is this is it. You know, we're gonna have some serious problems here. This is it." KSI uh, realized that KSI Capital. They realized that the building was upside down on value. Mm-hmm. Even though I paid my bills, it was upside down on value. So they filed to foreclose on on technicality of, of the building being upside down on value. I went ahead right away and and after like six months of, of wrangling with them to trying to, to to of trying to negotiate with them, I realized that I had not negotiated my legal my loan documents. They had everything in the, in this planet to get me. Mm-hmm. I had nothing to defend myself against them. So I learned a lot about what it, what it is to negotiate your loan documents and negotiate your guarantees and everything else from that, even though I had already done the deal. Unfortunately, I learned it backwards. Yeah. And John Bernstein, luckily I already knew him, helped me out with getting me the right counsel and everything else to help me fight that fight in 2007 and eight. So the attorneys advised me to get into a chapter 11 reorganization in 2007. Mm-hmm. I put the company, not myself, into a reorganization and there we fought them through the downturn, that bought me two years. Gotcha. And I fought them, fought them, fought them, fought them, fought them. In 2009, I came out of bankruptcy. I refinanced it with City National Bank, paid them back the money, and I kept the building. Mm-hmm. And at the same time, we in Brooklyn got our approval in mid-2009. We got the approval for uh, 700,000 square feet to be built on the site. Uh, all as of right, R8, mm-hmm. a 42-story building with a 22-story building on the back. The whole nine yards. We closed on December 2010 in uh, uh, on the site for $83.5 million, 50% financed by the owner, 50% cash for the family office, and it was settled. In 2010, I literally sat on a hundred plus million dollar site because of the value now of the of the uh, uh, of the air rights, about $120 million site. And I had the book tower, which I own hundred percent on my own, which was now worth much more than what I paid in 2006. Right. For a lot of different reasons. Mm-hmm. And there, I was completely, completely gone. You were set. Never, never looked back. At the same time, even though I had all of that, I still was in Williamsburg looking for houses. I was still was in in, in uh, Harlem looking. And then I never stopped doing that. Mm-hmm. So in the downturn, I learned what it was to buy paper, to buy mortgages. Mm-hmm. And I bought what's known as the Washington Mutual Estate, which mm-hmm. is a, a loan portfolio of two, three buildings in uh, uh, Harlem. I bought them. I went to bankruptcy with with that fellow. Took mm-hmm. me four years to get out of bankruptcy uh, with him. I bought it out of bankruptcy, took him out, and took over another 600 units by doing that mm-hmm. in 2011-12. It just kept going, man. It was just going on from there. Once I learned what I had, once I learned how big of a portfolio I actually had in 2008 and nine, once I learned how to use that portfolio, because now I had equity, how to use it, then from there I was able to just create a small operation of people that I could trust know the right financiers and banks and everything else that could help me and leverage that, which is, I didn't, I didn't know how to use that. The, the, the point of leverage mm-hmm. to then get what I wanted after that from Detroit. I went to Atlanta the first time, 2011, did a deal there, 2012. Then from there, I went to Texas for the first time, started moving there. Then I went to South Florida. Then I went to Arizona and Arizona got me to Los Angeles in 2012, 13. Gotcha. For the first time. And when I went to Los Angeles, I saw downtown LA in the same condition that I saw what? Harlem. Yep, in Detroit. Yep. The difference is that Harlem was an economy that was rolling. Mm-hmm. Detroit was a dead economy, and now I knew what I was in. Now I was not blind anymore. Right. So I saw that, and I said, as far as I know, Los Angeles is the second largest city in the country behind New York. It has as much AMI as mm-hmm. New York has. Now I knew what AMI was. I knew it ain't what going was. nowhere. I said, where the hell are they and why are they not coming here? Mm-hmm. So I said, if I understand the reasons why they're not here, I can make some deals out of that. I understood that. I learned what that was. And I said, I know what my business is. Yeah. I'm going to work in downtown. First Street to 11th Street, 
Los Angeles Street to Wanton Highway. I made that square in, in my office mm-hmm. and I started looking for buildings there in 2012. Now I inputted, I inputted all the tactics that I got in New York and all the tactics that I got in Detroit, especially. And I used it in downtown in the, in the in downtown LA. Took all my resources. For example, I took the book tower, I sold it to Dan Gilbert. Dan Gilbert now owns it. Okay. I sold it to him with, with plans and everything else for 13 or 14 million dollars at the time. Made a shit, what I consider was a shit, was a shit ton of money. Made the money. I went straight to uh, uh, Los Angeles and started buying buildings with the knowledge I now have, which I did not have when I went to any any of the two pr- previous. And I started amassing buildings in downtown, which at the time was selling for 60, 70, and $80 a foot, respectively, at the time, mm. not today. And I started buying historic buildings in downtown, nonstop. And everybody was wondering, who is he? Yeah. And I said, oh, I own this, I own that. They could not understand how I knew so much at the time. I was barely 32. And how I was doing as much as I was doing at the clip that I was going. They didn't realize that I had what I had. And I was not developing anything at the time. I was just buying stuff. I kept it quiet until an attorney that I uh, that I hired here, high-powered attorney, told me about the state taking out their uh, community redevelopment agency, the CRA, the CRAs. They were going to shut them down. Governor Brown was going to take all the CRAs and shut them down because they couldn't fund funnel them anymore. They have any money to fund them anymore. They had a class of assets, over 100 assets, that mm. they were going to take back, sell some, keep some, whatever. There was one in particular known as Y-1. Y-1 is what we know now as Angels Landing. Okay. <laughs> and you see where, where it went from there. Yeah, wow, that's a roller coaster ride. That's that's really something. So we got a few minutes left. I want to open it up for questions, but um, talk to us just a little bit so that we know exactly what LA Landing is, or so everybody kind of has a, a clear grasp as to what exactly that project is and and why it's so uh, important for the area and what exactly the finished product will look like. Angel Angel's Landing is part three of a three part uh, campus that was supposed to be built, uh, which is known as California Plaza. California Plaza one and two were built. California Plaza three, which we, which is where our site is, was never built in 1989. The developer lost it to the state, to the CRA. The CRA took it back and never did anything with it because no one wanted to develop in downtown. Right. But the developer at the time had already put together the air rights, had already, he had assembled the whole entire thing and gave it, just hand over the keys to the state at the time in order to not get sued. We saw that. And I said to myself, wait, I have the highest FAR in all of downtown, 13 FAR. The highest high, no bulk of high limits in downtown. So I said, I could build a very big building here without really blinking anything. I don't, I'm not going to have to go through entitlements, mm-hmm. but I don't have the the face to fight an RFP. I knew Don Peebles from, from, from years past. I met him in Detroit. He's, he's born, he was born in Detroit. He operated he operated and grew in D.C. and mm-hmm. then got really crazy and big in Miami. But I knew him from Detroit. Kwame Kilpatrick had introduced me to him back in those years. This is where I'm saying that meeting those politicians, I mean, all those people came back to, to help me many, many years later. Gotcha. Met the politicians and the people that got me to the political system here in LA, in Detroit, not here. I met them people in Detroit, not mm-hmm. here. Mm-hmm. And I put all those together and I said, "Look, Don, you are a very well-known guy. Everybody knows you. You know, I need a face. You have the money. You have a face. I need to be able to push this proposal." We got together, formed in just landing partners. He brought in Victor McFarland, not me. I didn't know him at the time. Okay. He brought him in, and the super team, as it was called, was formed. <laughs> the reason it's so important is because to fast forward, I'm not going to give you through the whole thing, but we fought from 27 uh, uh, position that we were at the beginning to number one, a year and a half of fighting. A lot of crazy stuff went down to get it done. But bottom line is we were the first minority team to win an RFP of that scale in the country, in the U.S., any mm. city in the U.S. No minority team ever won something that big. That's one reason why it's important. Number two, we are the first team to develop a massive mixed-use project in downtown Los Angeles of that scale. Before Oceanwide, which is a Chinese development firm that came later after us, they built. They came later and started, started first, which is crazy. But we were the first ones to think about that. We were the first ones to make people and show people that type one construction works in downtown when people thought it was too expensive. Mm-hmm. We showed them that it can actually work financially, it could work. And we were the first to create and bring the two big brands that we're bringing into the city, hotels and everything else, and all the other uses that we're bringing into it, the impact, financial impact was is so big that the city just realized that these kind of developments are what they needed to do in order to impact their bottom line and to change their demographics 
in very quick fashion. So that's the main reason why it's that important. It's something that has never been done down here. In New York, you have 20 of those buildings. Yeah. Detroit, even Detroit has 20 of those downtown. Here you have a few here and there. Mm-hmm. That, that is a big deal here because it's not that many. Everybody builds type five here, which is six stories, seven stories and below. So you have a million of those, but nothing big. So it's how many floors is how many floors is this going to be? It's going to be close to seventy five. It's going to, it's going to be. It was it was bigger at the beginning. It was taller at the beginning, but we had to scale it back for a lot of different reasons. Yeah. Uh, but it's still the tallest for sure. It's eight hundred and fifty four feet now tall. So it's yeah. going to still be the biggest that there is out there. Well, you know what's unique about it. Also, just a, a simple thing is um, the majority of of over the years, they've always built buildings in LA where they had flat roofs for helicopters, but they stopped doing that. Yeah, the, 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 that, it's funny. The day that we were in front of city city council and we got voted as the winning developers and everything else, that same day they did two things. They outdid the helipads mm-hmm. and they put in what's known in, 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 in turn for that crap, they put in what's known as the mills act or something like that, where they charge you a $5 per foot cost for them to pay for affordable housing and everything else. Mm. So two things happen at the same time. So we we, we got ourselves a bill. You know, think about it, two million square feet at $5 a foot, it's a big number for them to pay for affordable housing and other things somewhere else. That has nothing to do with what we're offering economically, but they got rid of them the same day. Those two things, one went away, one came in the same day. And uh, yeah, now we don't have to do flat roofs in, in, uh, in LA anymore. That, that was undone. In 2018, 2017, 2018. Yeah, yeah. So this this building will definitely change the skyline from that standpoint. Perfect. Let's do this real quick. Um, we haven't opened up the mic here for um, any of our guests here today. If you have any questions for Ricardo, raise your hand, put them in the chat box, whatever you want to do. We'll be happy to get you before we uh, we wrap up for the morning. But uh, Ricardo, so, you know, this this has been a uh, quite an epic journey. You know, one thing that's uh, very impressive is you got out here early. You had the guts to get into areas that people would clearly say, why are you doing that? You know, and then you look back now, like I said, growing up in, in Manhattan and looking at those brownstones and now knowing the value uh, and wishing I would have bought some myself, you know, back in those days is, is just an incredible no, thing. No one knew. So, it's a lot no, of courage. No one knew. Look, I cannot tell you I knew. I cannot tell you I knew. Hey, this, this, that would be impossible and I'll be lying to you. If uh-huh. I told you I knew and I was going to have Milton. No, there's no such thing. All I knew was that I had good assets at a good price. I didn't know that. Mm-hmm. I didn't know how good of a price it was, but I knew it was good. I sold many of these buildings, so you understand, not knowing. If I would have kept some of those buildings, I would have doubled the net worth out today. Double, if I would have just kept them. Yeah. But I needed the cash to do the bigger deals I'm talking about now, right? So right. one thing had to give, one, well, something had to give. Mm-hmm. You know, I wouldn't own everything I own in Texas now if it wasn't for that. I wouldn't own anything, everything I own in Phoenix now if it wasn't for that, because I sold those smaller buildings to buy much bigger ones in smaller cities. But those buildings appreciated so much that the value that I made in the new buildings did not match the the, uh, increased valuation those things got. So I don't think, except the seasoned investors in New York, no one really knew. Mm -hmm. So to me, the courage got me there. And, 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 and as I said, not knowing much, being that young gave me enough to have a block where I didn't care about the history. Right. Mm-hmm. A lot of people would, would, would care about the history. I, I didn't, I, it didn't scare me. Like Detroit will scare anybody. Even today, yeah. I, I, I was in Detroit this year to do a photo, a photo, uh, a shoot. I went around every city I did and did a photo shoot of the buildings that I had done and, and stuff. And I saw Detroit now, 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 now. I had not been in Detroit in six years. Since I bought, since I sold the building to to uh, Gilbert, actually mm-hmm. that we five years, I went back to Detroit. I can tell you today, knowing what I know today, knowing everything I know today, I don't think I could do that book tower deal today, if it was being sold to me today, at ten million, fifteen million dollars today, which is still cheap. I don't think I could buy it today. It's just all these. Now I know what a return on cost is. All these negative things that I could talk to you about that will tell you not to do a deal, economics and AMIs mm-hmm. and all these things. At the time, I didn't know that. And that's what allowed me to not be afraid and say, fuck it, this is a great deal anyway, I'll go for it. Whereas now, I have all these blocks in front of me telling me, no, 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 that's, that's just not, <laughs> We don't do that. You know, we, we don't operate here. And I don't do it now. Who knows how many deals I've given up that were probably as good as Detroit was just because of the ignorance I have now mm-hmm. of all these blocks that you put on yourself by knowing things, which is, again, good and bad, right? At right. the time, the ignorance is what gained the size for me, which is crazy. But that's how it worked. I just knew that I had really good buildings. That's all I knew. But, you know, part of that value was probably the team that you built around you as well. You know, getting those good yeah, attorneys and others. 
I didn't have a team until 2009, 2010. And that team was not seasoned. They were not college educated. They were not guys that, that, that had, you know, 20 deals in, the, in, the, in, in, in their pipeline. No, it, it was very young. It was very young. Now I have a team that's, that's very good. That team has been with me for, for three or four years, five years. But no, the, the, the beginning of the career, I was literally on my own. Yeah. You know, I, I relied on a lot of people outside. And look, that, that, that had me make a lot of mistakes. A lot of bad mistakes. But at the end of the day, you know, we grew as a team together and and, and, and now have the experience and, and ability to, to, to do things. At the beginning, I didn't have any of that. All I had was the idea that I was buying good stuff for little money. Look, I, I kept seeing how buildings that I bought were selling for more near me. And that told me I was doing the right thing. That's all I knew. Yeah. If I buy a building for 200 grand, like the one in, in Pacific Street in, 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 in Best Times in 2000, and I pay 185,000. If somebody buys the same building a couple of blocks away for 375,000, that sends me a message. Yeah. I knew that, that something was happening. I didn't know what that was, but I knew it was happening. And I said, now we don't sell. Now we don't sell. I'll sell a few, but I keep what I got. And from there, man, it was, look, the appreciation in New York, I don't think I've seen it anywhere, anywhere. Even here in Los Angeles, which you appreciated three times mm-hmm. from when I came in 2012, three times. I still have not seen appreciation like that anywhere in the country yeah. how I saw New York. Well, New York ain't going nowhere, that's for sure. No. So what 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 recommendation would you give to uh younger ones? Because you know that this podcast is is really designed to be like a fireside chat where we you know ex- expose others that are young and up and coming in the game and trying to figure out you know how they can participate in and become players in commercial real estate. Uh what advice do you have for those ones that are really trying to get their foothold in the game? Look, the first thing is let go of the fear. You know, a lot of people have fear of failing and falling on their face and everything else. That's the first thing. You have to let go of fear, fear of not making it, fear of not being successful, fear or whatever. And honestly, lower your expectations from being too grand to a little lower so you don't make it too hard on yourself. Mm-hmm. You want to think that you're doing the dumb people thing or even my thing or whatever else. Don't think about that, at least not yet. You know, think about what you can handle, what you can actually grasp and control. I wasn't thinking about being no Donald Trump when I was starting out. I knew who he was. I wasn't thinking about that. I wasn't mm-hmm. thinking about doing deals in Midtown Manhattan. I thought about what can I do in Williamsburg? That's what I can do. What can I do here yeah. in Harlem? What can I do in Harlem? You know, bottom line is you want to succeed. Think about an area, whatever city you're in, if you're in Atlanta, whatever it is, think about an area that you think you could be good at. Let's say in Atlanta, Clarkson to me mm-hmm. is an area that, that could be interesting or Decatur, one of those areas, which right now is nasty. Decatur is mm-hmm. nasty right now. And Clarkson is mm-hmm. go there and said, I think I could be good here. I could talk to the owners here. I could find deals that are under the radar now and take control of them. Take control of them and start buying, which in Decatur, you could buy, you could find a founder unit building in any other corner. Mm-hmm. Well, in Clarkson, you could find it because they're all big complexes there. Right. Start buying them. Slowly find a way to put the equity together, find a way to get the equity together and be creative. That's the only way when you're young and small and no one cares to even know who you are. That's how you can get out of that is being creative. Don't think that just because you don't have the money and you don't have the resources and you don't have the balance sheet that nobody's going to talk to you. People yeah. talk to you depending the deal you have in your hand. If anything, I learned. If I have a good deal in my hand, everybody wants to get to know me. Mm-hmm. Again, no one will write about me the story that they'd write about me if I wasn't doing a billion-dollar project somewhere. They'd write about me because I have a billion-dollar project. The only reason, right? Yeah. They write about me because I did a deal at 26 that I shouldn't be doing. That's why they wrote about me then. So because I had the deal, people knew we need to know who the hell that is. I just didn't know how important that was. Once I was able to use it against you, then it was very easy from there. Yeah. Now I use, no, a billion, a billion and a half dollar building. Yeah, this is something, something I just have when it's really not that simple. So if you have a deal, a deal that makes sense, that is uh, of value, trust me, there's going to be 20 people lining up to talk to you. It's the other way around. So the fear should go away and it should go into more like optimism when you say, you know, I can go to Decatur, Clarkson, or whatever it is, and find a deal that's undervalued there. Take control of the thing, then go to a bank or to a private lender or whatever it is, and take it take it over. You have to have that mentality that you literally can do that, mm-hmm. even though you probably can't. And for some reason on earth, by doing that kind of work, you will find yourself in a situation like I did with 1082 Pacific Street, like I did with 123rd Street, like I did with the Book Tower. These were all deals that were done with financial engineering. And me having enough belief in myself that I could figure it out even though I didn't have the money. I did not have the money. 
I figured it out without it. And then later we made the money later. That's how it worked out. So that's what young people need to know if they even want to be doing this. Fear cannot be there. You will never make it. Yeah, yeah, that's that's a very good point. I think most people stop right at that point where they say, I don't have the money, so how am I going to do this? Or they yeah, get that first phone call. Yeah, show me show me your, your bank statement or yeah, you know, proof of funds. Yeah, and, they, and then they just shut down and go away. I, I tell people all the time, I said, you don't believe that it's possible? You think that I'm fooling you? I said, okay. I, I, I gave addresses to people. I said, look, go check out 1082 Pacific Street on the Acre System in New York, if you don't believe me. Mm-hmm. Look what, at the year I bought that in the price. Go to 167 Grand Street and look at the price that I paid in the year. Go to 147 Grand Street and look at the address in the year again. You're going to notice something particular. Same guy, almost no money, meaning that the loan and the prices were right next to each other. Mm-hmm. And the same thing over and over. In other words, what does that mean? I figured out a way how to do it with what I had, which was no money. Yeah. I figured out a way. And I was able to buy them nonstop. And then I was able to sell them and make the money. And then later, you know what I'm saying? Becomes easier. Yeah. If you don't believe in yourself, you think you're not going to make it, you won't make it. It's very simple. You you just won't. Nobody's going to help you, but you're the one that's going to fail. Everybody else keeps going. Understand that right now, somebody in this country is doing exactly what I did. It might not be in Williamsburg. It could be in Kingston, New York, for all I know. It could be in in Southfield, Michigan, for all I know. Mm -hmm. Somewhere in this country, in a small crappy city somewhere, someone is buying a boatload of little houses or something like that at whatever bottom feeder price. No one's paying attention to that person. And they're buying little houses or buildings right this very second. I know that. I do not know who these people are, but I know they're there. But you will 10 years from now. And the reason, right. And the reason (laughs) reason you'll find out is because of that. In 10 years, you'll say, oh, shit. Yeah, uh, Jason, Jason, where they come from? Who the yeah. hell is that? Yeah, he didn't come out of nowhere. He just exactly. said to himself, I could buy buildings here in, in whatever part of the state and I can make it here. I'll make it here where I'm at. I don't need to go over there. But they have belief in themselves and they got there. You cannot you cannot fault them for that. And that's how this works. To me, that's how the business works. Usually people understand that this building business is something that is, you know, an inheritance business where someone started some uh, sometime. And that person is inherit, you know, inherits 20 buildings, mm-hmm. and then they go and amass 20 more, and then the kids inherit 40 buildings. It technically is like that, but you have to understand that at the beginning, someone, the grandfather, the great-grandfather, started at zero somewhere. Yeah. When you yeah. understand that, you know, the, from the Trump family to everybody else, they all started very tiny. Yeah. It, it was just one of them in that line had enough guts to say, I can do it. Mm-hmm. Fred Trump said, I could build middle-income family buildings in Brooklyn. Was successful yeah. doing that. Mm-hmm. You know, that's why Donald Trump is who he is. I mean, you can keep going. All these families, the Durst family, I don't know if you know them in New York. Yeah, yeah. Family, same thing with the Durst family. The Fisher family, which owns half of Park Avenue, same mm-hmm. thing with them. Yeah. I can keep going. They all started somewhere, and they started just doing and having enough guts to say, I can make it on Park Avenue. Yeah, I can make it on Sixth Avenue, like the, like the Durst family said. And I said to myself, I can make it in Williamsburg. I can make it in Greenpoint. Yeah, that's something that's a belief you have to have. Yeah, that's a very valuable point because people generally only see the ones that have inherited that wealth and they say, well, get about you know, that. My, my parents were poor, so I'll never be able to do that. Look, so. think, 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 think about it today, how people now it's a social media thing. Mm-hmm. Can you believe that people today, they consider success having 20, 30, 40, 100,000 followers online? I told that in a in a in a, in a <laughs> interview I had a couple of months ago. I don't look. I don't. I don't knock anybody. I know people are making twenty and fifty million dollars on YouTube or whatever they're doing. God bless. That's all great. I could care less about that. That's not my business. Mm-hmm. At the end of the day, you look at my Instagram account. I barely have five hundred followers. These are friends and family. That's it. I could care less about being in the news. Now I'm in the news in the last two three years, and I was already successful by the time people got to know me. Mm-hmm. By the time look, by the time I got to Angels Landing. The billion dollar thing we keep talking about. I have four million, three point two million square feet of assets under my control by that time. Two thousand apartments by that time. You understand? I was yeah. twenty million miles ahead of anybody mm-hmm. that could even dare to talk about me being a beginner. That's why the city spoke to us. Yeah. So you know, you don't need all this propaganda and all this machine and everything. People think that unless you have the followers today, you have, and everybody knows you, you cannot make it. That is unnecessary. You don't need it. It's not even a requisite. What you need is guts. You need wits and you need to be able to be smarter than the next guy to get the deal that he cannot get. You need that. Very true. Well, Ricardo, guess what, man? We've been talking over an hour. 
<laughs> like time goes fast. Yeah, yeah, time goes really fast. We really appreciate it. And uh, this has been great. This has been great. You know, we certainly look forward to working with you again when you're not tied up on, on that project out there. You know where we are. And uh, it's been a pleasure to have you here with uh, Mornings with Joel, the CRE podcast. And uh, it's just been outstanding. So, you know, anytime you want to come back and we talk more about these deals is is a fantastic thing. And next time I'm in L.A., I'm definitely going to look you up, see if we get together and do lunch or something, hopefully post-COVID. You know, uh, to me, I'm actually heading your way in the next couple of days. I'll be in Texas okay. on Wednesday to look at more stuff there. And from there, I'll probably jump to Atlanta quickly. Okay. I might be there next week. I'll be in Texas mid this week into next week and then next week i'll go to atlanta to look at a building and then i'm going to go back to new york and then fly back over here so i'm going to be there for the first time since i let go of that deal we were talking about so gotcha. it is what it is pleasure Thank yeah you. yeah yeah well text me up when you get in town and you know hopefully we'll get together to do a little something but yeah it's been great man it's been great thank you so much for carving out the time and getting up early in the morning uh, again this is mornings with joel cre podcast we want to thank you all for being here today and listening to us and we certainly want to thank our special guest, Ricardo Pagan. Uh, if you don't know him, you definitely know him now, and you will definitely be knowing him with all the great things that he's doing going forward. So, Ricardo, thanks again. It's been great having you. Look forward to speaking with you soon. Thank you, guys. Take care, right. guys. Take care, everyone. Bye-bye. You've been listening to Mornings with Joel, commercial real estate podcast, where we focus on rising stars and established players in commercial real estate and talk to them about how they are building legacies in today's marketplace. Please check back weekly to hear our upcoming guests.